Section 17 of the On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Julie Yu. On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime. By Hugo Munsterberg. Hypnotism and Crime. Part 2. A full hypnotic state cannot be reached in such a way. It shades off into the states of submission which belong to our normal social life. There is increased suggestibility in love and fear, in the pupil's feeling towards the teacher and the patient's feeling towards the physician. Nowhere a sharp demarcation line between these most valuable influences of social authority and the abnormal suggestions which have the climax in the complete hypnotic state. Such semi-hypnotic state can work, of course, also for good, but the dangers of its misuse are evident. I remember the tragic case of a young Western woman who seems to have lived for years such a depersonalized social life she had gone through college and graduate university work, and every one of her instructors and comrades was charmed with the lovely girl. But her finest gifts showed themselves in her delightful family life. Her aged mother and her sisters were her only thoughts. The family made the acquaintance of an Italian who posed as a rich Italian count. He was without means, without education, disreputable and mannerless from the lowest level. The girl was disgusted with him, but he managed to see her often. She felt with aversion how his influence grew on her. She felt a shiver when he looked at her, and yet an uncanny sensation crept over her, a strange fascination which she could not overcome. She had to do what he asked, and finally, what he ordered her to do. She despised him, and yet one day they secretly left the house and were married. At once, he took possession of the young woman's considerable property. But it was not only that she gave him all, under his control, she began absurd lawsuits to deprive the family of all they owned. She swore on the witness stand in court to the most cruel accusations and attacks against her mother, who had never wavered in her devoted love for her daughter. And everyone who knew her before felt from her expression and her voice that she was not herself anymore but that she was the passive instrument of an unscrupulous schemer. Her own mother said, Sometimes, for a few minutes, I seemed to get near her. Then she would seem gone, miles and miles away. There are no words to describe the horror of it. And the sister wrote, I should go crazy if I saw her often and such a weird spectacle of an elusive mind, which is the old personality, and yet not the old self. 
is not quite rare in our courtrooms. It is a hypnotic state which is pregnant with social dangers, but certainly, as said before, there is no fear that it can be brought about suddenly or from a distance. In this persistent influence, works probably only on neurotic persons with a special disposition for mental inhibitions and never reaches complete hypnotism. How far does the full hypnotic state itself fall within the realm of criminal action? One aspect offers itself at once. The hypnotized person may become the powerless instrument of the criminal will of the hypnotizer. He may press the trigger of the gun, may mix the poison into the food, may steal and forge, and yet the real responsible actor is not the one who commits the crime, but the other one who is protected and who directed the deed by hypnotic suggestion. All that has been demonstrated by experiments a hundred times. I perhaps tell the hypnotized man that he is to give poison to the visitor whom I shall call from the next room. I have a sugar powder prepared and assure my man that the powder is arsenic. I throw it into a glass of water before his eyes and then I call the friend from the next room. The hypnotized subject takes the glass and offers it to the newcomer. You see how he hesitates and perhaps trembles, but finally he overcomes his resistance and offers the sugar water, which he must take for poison. The possibilities of such secret crimes seem to grow, moreover, in an almost unlimited way through the so-called post-hypnotic suggestions. The opportunity to perform unwillingly a crime in the hypnotic sleep itself is in practical life, of course, small and exceptional. But the hypnotizer can give the order to carry out the act at a later time, a few hours or a few days after awaking. Every experimenter knows that he can make the subject go through a foolish performance long after the hypnosis ended. Go this afternoon at four to your friend, stand before him on one leg and repeat the alphabet. Such a silly order will be carried out to the letter and only the theoretical question is open, whether the act is done in spite of full consciousness or whether the subject falls again under the influence of his own imagination at the suggested time into a half-hypnotic state. Certainly, he does not know before four o'clock that he is expected to do the act. And when the clock strikes four, he feels an instinctive desire to run to the house of his friend and to behave as demanded. He will even do it with the feeling of freedom and will associate in his own mind illogical motives to explain to his own satisfaction his perverse desires. He wants to recite the alphabet to his friend because his friend once made a mistake in spelling. Might he not just as well run to his friend's house and shoot him down if a criminal hypnotizer afflicted him with such a murderous suggestion? 
he would again believe himself to act in freedom and would invent a motive. The situation becomes the more gruesome as the criminal would have only half done his work in omitting to add the further suggestion that no one else would ever be able to hypnotize him again and that he would entirely forget that he was ever hypnotized. Experiment proves that all this is entirely possible and that post-hypnotic suggestion thus plays in literature a convenient role of secret agency for atrocious murder as well as for Trilby's wonderful singing. In contradiction to all this, I have to confess, I have my doubts as to the purity of Trilby's hypnotic singing. And I have more than doubts, yes, I feel practically sure that no real murder has ever been committed by an innocent man under the influence of post-hypnotic suggestion. It is true, I have seen men killing with paper daggers and poisoning with white flour and shooting with empty revolvers in the libraries of nerve specialists or in laboratory rooms with doctors sitting by and watching the performance. But I have never become convinced that there did not remain a background idea of artificiality in the mind of the hypnotized, and that this idea overcame the resistance which would be prohibitive in actual life. To bring an absolute proof of this conviction is hardly possible, as we cannot really kill for experiment's sake. There remains, of course, also the possible claim that the courts have condemned men for murder for which they were passive instruments. Yet, it is a fact that, so far, no murder case is known in which the not unusual theory of the hypnotic influence seemed probable after all evidence was in. I have repeatedly received inquiries from lawyers asking whether there would be any basis to stand on if the defense were to claim that the crime was done in a hypnotic or prose-hypnotic state. I have replied every time that, in spite of the many experiments which seem to prove the contrary, it can be said that hypnotic suggestion is unable to break down the inner resistance. There is, therefore, no danger to be feared from this side. The frequent claim of defendants that they must have been hypnotized is, nevertheless, mostly, no conscious invention. It is rather the outcome of the fact that the criminal impulse comes to the unbalanced, diseased mind, often like a foreign intruder. It takes hold of the personality without free choice of motives, and the unfortunate sufferer thus interprets quite sincerely his unaccountable perversions as the result of strange outside influences. But there is another side, and it would be reckless to overlook the difference. You cannot make an honest man steal and kill, but you can make him perform any other actions which are not immoral as far as the action is concerned, and which yet have criminal character. The scoundrel perhaps gives the post-hypnotic suggestion that his subject, a man of independent means and without immediate relatives, 
call it a lawyers and deposit with him a last will, leaving all his property to the hypnotizer. Here, no resistance from moral principle is involved. The man who throws away all he owns acts in accordance with the order because the impulse is not checked by the habits of a trained conscience. We can add one more step, which is entirely possible. The hypnotizer may see a further opportunity to give the post-hypnotic suggestion of suicide. The next day, the victim is found dead in his room. Everything indicates that he took his own life. There is not the least suspicion, and the hypnotizer is his heir in consequence of the spurious last will. Similar cases are reported, and they are not improbable. The easiness with which any hypnotizer can cover the traces of his crime by special suggestions makes the situation the more dangerous. In this group belong also the post-hypnotic perjuries. Of course, if the man on the witness stand knew that he swore falsely, his moral convictions would rebel less in the case of the theft and murder. But he believes what he swears. On his side, there is no crime, but merely confusion of ideas and falsified memory. The crime belongs entirely to the one who fabricated the artificial delusion. In many of these cases, the hypnotized subject is the sufferer while himself is acting. They are not seldom supplemented by crimes in which the subject is a passive sufferer. The French literature of hypnotism is full of cases in which hypnotized women have been the victims of sexual crime. No warning can be loud enough, indeed, against hypnotizing by anyone but reliable doctors of medicine. Other cases refer to simple fraud. The post-hypnotic suggestion may force one man to pay the price of real pearls for glass pearls and may induce another man to buy a house which is useless for him. The physician, who is a trained psychologist, will have no difficulty in assisting the court in all such situations and in making the right diagnosis. On the other hand, without thorough experience in scientific psychology, no one will be able to disentangle such cases, be he physician or not. The hypnotizer may have suggested complete forgetfulness and may have prohibited any new hypnotization, but there always remains somewhere a little opening where the psychologist can insert a wedge and finally break open the whole mental structure. It may be added at once that the psychologist has also no difficulty in recognizing any simulation of hypnotic states. There remains still one important relation between hypnotism and crime. Hypnotization may prevent crime. The moral interest we take in the suppression of criminal impulses makes us inclined to see a sharp demarcation line between these socially destructive tendencies and other impulses which are morally indifferent. Psychologically, we cannot acknowledge such a distinct line between them. The craving for an immoral and illegal end 
may take possession of a weak nervous system in the same way in which any neurasthenic impulse becomes rooted. And it seems therefore not unjustified to hope for such a criminal disposition, the same relief by hypnotic treatment as for the neurasthenic disturbance. Last year, I was approached within the same week by two young men who complained in almost identical terms that they could not master their ideas and desires. The one suffered from the idea that he wanted to kill certain persons. Whenever he saw them, he felt the impulse to knock them down. The other suffered from the idea that she wanted to look alternatingly from one eye to the other of any person with whom she talked. The impulse to kill was possibly of the greatest consequence. The impulse to look from eye to eye was evidently the most indifferent affair. And yet the second person was the greater sufferer. She had once, by chance, observed in a man's face a striking difference in colour between his two eyes, and that led her to look alternatingly to the one and the other eye. It became a habit which grew stronger than her will, and when she came to me, it had reached a point where she thought of suicide because life had become intolerable from this incessant impulse to swing from eye to eye. I treated the dangerous killing impulse and the harmless swinging impulse exactly alike. By inhibitory suggestions, and they disappeared under the hypnotic treatment in exactly the same time. But it is evident that the criminal impulses cannot be simply treated as an appendix to the neurasthenic states. Most complex and partly moral questions are involved therein. Have we a right to reinforce righteousness by hypnotic instead of by an appeal to spiritual energies? If we cure the depraved boy of his stealing habit by hypnotism, would it not be the simple logical consequence that his whole education and training ought to be left to such a safe and forceful influence? And that opens the widest perspective of social problems. It leads us to a new and separate question. What can the modern psychologist contribute to the prevention and suppression of crime? End of section 17